Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is meddling founder and CEO, Travis Rosenblatt. First of all, Pew Research has a brand new study on what the latest social trends are, and you're probably not going to be too surprised by them. At least I wasn't. One of the things that it found out was some of the major social networks that we've been using for, it seems like forever now, we're still using and they're still popular. However, they're a lot more popular than you might think. For instance, YouTube is used by 81% of adults in the United States. 81%. Facebook is used by 69%. And then it drops way down. Instagram, 40%. Pinterest, 31%. LinkedIn, 28%. Snapchat, 23%. Twitter, 23%. Surprising. WhatsApp, 23%. TikTok, 21%. It's funny because of all of the hype that TikTok gets. It's only 21% of adults in the United States that actually follow it. Then Reddit, 18%. And Nextdoor, 13%. Now, the interesting thing here is the only social networks that actually have gone up in the last couple of years or Reddit and YouTube by a lot, by 8%. Everything else is down a little bit. The other thing that the study actually pointed out was the fact that Facebook really isn't losing any ground. We keep on hearing stories about how especially younger people are staying away from Facebook, but that's not the case. Actually, Facebook isn't losing any ground in daily usage, where the people that use it will use it every single day, and, and many of them more than once. There is a couple of social networks, though, that do hold true to form. For instance, Instagram, 71% between the ages of 18 and 29, and Snapchat, about 65%. So there are these 10 pretty big social networks in the United States, some that are a lot bigger than others, some that just about all of us use every single day. And there are no surprises, because we're using them, we know we're using them, we know our friends are using them, and it looks like that's going to continue for at least the near future. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my music mixing primer and 101 mixing tricks programs that will help take your mixes to the next level. Go to bobbyosinskicourses.com to learn more. Now, through this last year, everybody that owns a studio has wondered, what do I do to clean my microphones? And it took more than a year for sure to come out with some guidance on this. And even then, they kind of punked out. And they basically said, well, here are some microphone cleaning suggestions but it has nothing to do with the virus, so don't quote us on this. Just use what we're saying to clean your microphones and make them look good. Like I say, it's kind of a cop-out, but let's go over what they say. And the first thing is, here's some things to avoid putting on your microphones. For instance, no bleach cleaning products. No hydrogen peroxide. This is a big one because a lot of us thought for a while that hydrogen peroxide was going to be the clean-all for everything. Don't use hand sanitizers either. No abrasive tools like scrub brushes or scouring pads. Don't saturate your products with any kind of liquid. Well, it goes without saying. 
Don't use rubbing alcohol, especially on clear plastic parts. And when it comes to grills, remove the grill and the windscreen before you clean it and make sure that you don't actually try to clean the element itself. Yeah, you try to do that and chances are you're going to wind up with a microphone that's broken. So that's what not to do. What should you do? Well, use a soft cloth or a soft bristle toothbrush to supply cleaner. And just use a minimal amount. Don't saturate the product. What kind of cleaner should you use? Mild soapy water like liquid dish soap or Clorox disinfecting wipes or isopropyl alcohol. Here's the problem. If you happen to have a microphone that has been painted for one reason or another, you have a nice enamel on it, you better test it on a part that people won't see first because it's entirely possible that you're going to take some of it off using these cleaning agents. But when it really comes down to it, what we want to do is clean the grill, right? So the first thing is unscrew the grill from a microphone. And when I'm saying this, I'm thinking of an SM58, which let's face it, this is what we all have and pretty much we all use when it comes down to sound reinforcement anyway. And you're going to take that grill off. There's usually a foam windscreen pop filter inside. And if you can, pull it out and clean it with water or isopropyl alcohol. Now, you might not be able to pull it out because sometimes it's glued in there. That's the case. Just do your best. Basically get a soft bristle toothbrush and clean the grill with water. Try not to let any suds collect in the windscreen because that actually can affect the performance of the microphone. And then rinse the foam windscreen with water or isopropyl alcohol only and let it dry. Now, what they really suggest is you should have a second one. And as the first one is drying, you're using the second one. It's usually a good idea, I would say. And as we all know, these tend to get dented. So many of us that have lots of microphones, especially SM58s, tend to have these around anyway but not a bad idea. So here's the thing though, make sure that you keep that microphone element dry. If you do happen to get it wet, let it dry out first and keep your fingers crossed. Hopefully it's going to work. So that's what Sure recommends you do in order to clean your microphones. And mostly they're talking Sure microphones. Will this work on others? Yeah, probably. And again, this has nothing to do with getting rid of COVID viruses, at least officially. This is just to get them looking clean and smelling as best as they can. My guest this week is Travis Rosenblatt, who uses experience in A&R for Warner Brothers and 300 Entertainment to create Meddling, a subscription-based service which offers real-time data on global music markets, as well as tracking capabilities, analytics, and communications tools. Meddling is used by record labels, music publishers, artist management, law firms, talent agencies, and concert promoters to spot new musical talent and trends. Some of his clients include Republic, Columbia, Capital, Disney and Island Records, and Universal Music Publishing, among many others. During the interview, we spoke about how label A&R has changed over the years, what indicates an artist is hot, shrinking radio promo departments, the hype surrounding virtual concerts, and much more. I spoke with Travis via Zoom from his home in Los Angeles. Let's get started with how you got started in the music business. Um, I started booking concerts at my college in upstate New York. Uh, And then from there, had internships in L.A. 
uh, at Golden Voice, uh, owned by AEG and um, and Columbia Records uh, in A and R uh, for them. Uh, went back to school, realized I was having more fun doing that than in any of my classes. Uh, moved down to the city, uh, New York, uh, and got an unpaid internship in Bowery Presents for my first summer, also now owned by by AEG, um, and. You know, wasn't getting paid anything, but could go to basically any of the shows I wanted to in New York for free every night. Was having a blast. Um, you know, almost died, uh, but was just trying to meet people in the business, get things, uh, get a, a sense of, of what the where the opportunities were, and uh, and get a job. So, took a few months, and I kind of accidentally ended up landing a job as an A and R assistant uh, at Warner Brothers Records. Uh, and then a few months later, uh, my boss left, uh, and they gave me his job. So I would did A&R at Warner Brothers for two years, two and a half years, and then um, was at uh, 300 uh, for another probably two and a half, and then uh, started meddling my, my A&R SAS. All right, before we get to that, how has A&R changed between when you started and the way it is now? Oh man. Um, I mean, first of all, I'm not sure I, I can really give you a good answer on, on how A&R really was when I started. So I was the only A&R guy in New York. I couldn't get, you know, any, any of my bosses on the phones. I don't think anyone actually described told me what my job was supposed to be. So it was out of necessity that I just started keeping tabs on kind of what was happening online at the time, you know, on the blogs, on, on the iTunes charts. Um, and I realized pretty quickly that by the time, you know, people would bring things into A&R meetings and talk about them as artists, I had already seen them, uh, you know, probably a couple of weeks ago on, you know, Hype Machine and then saw them, you know, at Pop Shop and already knew what was happening. And um, I, I mean, I can only guess, I think they were getting the information through, you know, their scouts, their lawyers, their managers, conversations that they were happening. Uh, I've never really had a, another way to do it. Um, I didn't, you know, have enough time to, to you know, establish that network um, that I think most people rely on before actually getting thrown into to the deep end of A&R. So you didn't go out to the clubs and do the footwork? I would do that after. I mean, I, if there was something worth seeing. Um, it also was a lot easier. I mean, I, there, were, there were three venues you know, in Williamsburg that you had to go to and I'd hit all three and then go to bed and I got an apartment directly across the street from them. And like, yeah, I was absolutely there, but it was, it was a lot easier then. And, uh, you know, the stuff that they were booking into those clubs was stuff that was happening online. These were not, you know, ex mutually exclusive groups, uh, at all. These were, you know, people would go, were going to the shows, talking about them, sharing them, uh, you know, blogging about them and then going to other shows. It was, it was very much a single thing. Okay, so I can see how meddling came about then, to at least to a certain degree, because you're already doing this. And I would assume you probably thought, well, wait a second, this is probably the way it should be done. It's the only way I knew how, and it certainly helped me quite a lot. So when I left 300 at the end of 2014, I learned how to code and put together, you know, a super early version of, of what it is now. And I I didn't think like, oh, this will be a great business. I just sent it around to the heads of A&R. I was talking about other jobs. 
and and I you know I said to them like, look, here's this thing. You can help me do my job. You should hire me. Uh, and instead, they all came back with, well, how much do you want to charge for this? Uh, so that's was like, oh, this is a company. This is a service I provide now. Um, so I had to I had to do that. Um, so I spent eight months learning how to build it, building it, uh, and uh, and getting in front of people until my first two customers signed on. Um, but that made it worth it, and it's just been growing ever since. Did you ever get any pushback from traditional A and R people saying, uh, "I don't know about this"? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, uh, nowadays, you know, less. But when I started this thing, is it almost six years ago now? Five and a half years ago? Yeah, I mean, I, I would show up to a meeting. Somebody would want to check it out and, and they would get offended. Like, well, you know, I have ears made of gold. I hear hits in my sleep. How dare you? I didn't really know what to say that other than I don't see it as a replacement for that. I just see it as something to help you. I mean, now, you know, fast forward to, to present day and, and there is nothing else. Um, but even before that, you know, there's the, just an explosion in, in the number of artists uh, and new talent. And just in order to efficiently keep tabs on it, in order to do, you know, what we called A&R coverage, just knowing that you were on top of everything that was happening, it's kind of the only way to do it now. Well, let's get into meddling a little bit more and talk about where you're getting your data from. Anywhere that, that uh, you know, I can get my grubby paws into. Um, it's just anything that has to do with, with music consumption. So we're talking about, um, you know, sales, streams, playlists, radio play, you know, tags, people are talking about things somewhere. Um, anything that, that I consider music consumption. So I'm not tracking stuff like socials. I'm not looking, you know, to see if an artist had an increase in, in Twitter followers or whatever, looking for, you know, actual music consumption. Okay, that's surprising, actually. It's surprising that you're not tracking, at least to me, that you're not tracking social, because I would think that that would be a big flag of what's popular and what isn't. I'm talk I, well, I, trend I, I track what people are talking about or what they're sharing, but not the artist entity itself across socials. And this is just something I like to distinguish because this was always what um, you know, next big sound back in the day would say, we're, you know, an increase in Wikipedia page views correlates to future album sales. And while that's true, there are much stronger correlations out there, you know, including current uh, album sales, current digital sales, current, current digital streams, or yeah, people talking about, you know, these artists on social channels. That is certainly true. What would indicate that an artist is hot then? Um, so, Rather than provide a single list of, you know, artists to all of my clients, um, I just provide a bunch of tools for them to go and look at the information however they want to. And that way I can make sure, you know, it, it, I provide them with useful information no matter what their A&R investment thesis is. So that's how I know that it works for, you know, a major as well as an indie, you know, as a, a, an alternative label as well as a hip hop label. So they can go in and set their own thresholds, set what they're looking for, and it'll present them just with uh, the things that they want to see. If I you know, am looking at it, if I'm using it, I like to see multiple signals. I want to see that 
you know, an artist is not just popping off on one platform, but that there's a lot going on there. Um, and then, uh, you know, very intentionally, the first thing that, you know, happens if you click on the artist in the platform is it'll play you the song. I'm just trying to highlight, you know, here are the things that you should check out. I'm not telling you to go sign these things. I'm telling you to listen to them. Is this looking globally at the information? Absolutely. Okay. So what would be the trends then outside of North America that you see? So, so much of the way that we consume music now is, is just so global. I mean, everything is that it's, it's hard to see something that's isolated outside of the U.S. There are plenty of artists, you know, and, and genres that haven't fully broken into the U.S., um, you know, that certainly takes time. And it's, it's also true the other way around. Obviously, there are things, you know, happening in the U.S. that haven't gone international. But I mean, with the, the recent, uh, I say recent, but, I, you know, last few years, kind of the, the explosion and adoption of, of you know, K-pop and Latin music in the U.S., I think we're, we're really breaking down those, those barriers. One of the things that I noticed empirically, I did do a lot of traveling, traveling until COVID, but it used to be that when you walked down the street in Paris, you would hear whatever was the latest U.S. radio hit. And any big city around the world, that's what you'd be hearing primarily. And it's not like that anymore. What you're hearing is more indigenous music and indigenous artists that is influenced by, you know, American hip-hop or, or whatever. Well, in a country like France, they have cultural requirements where 80% of the music that's played on the radio has to be French artists. Yeah, Canada too. Yeah. Yeah. So that uh, they have a, a funny way of creating and marketing artists out there. They basically just create what they call French answers. So there's a, you know, if Rihanna does well in the US, they just create a French Rihanna. Uh, or, a, you know, they have their French Justin Bieber. They have their, and I don't know these people's names, but they tend to do that at the major level. And then, I mean, obviously, there's plenty of stuff that happens, you know, organically in, in each territory as well. Interesting. Interesting. So are there other departments besides A&R that are, are using meddling? Um, yeah. I mean, certainly to a lesser extent because it was built for A&R. But um, I have six different promo departments, radio uh, promotions departments, using it to track, you know, their own priorities. Um, and only one marketing department right now. Um, but I mean, the information is all there. If you want to track, you know, your own artists, see how they're doing. There was an interesting article in Variety this morning about radio promo. It was mostly about radio music consumption, but one of the, the side parts of it was the fact that label radio promo departments are shrinking or disappearing completely because they're finding it's not needed. Have you found that? I have a, a lot of friends who are radio promo guys. So of course that they're absolutely crucial, but uh, we now have other ways to market market artists. I don't think that the importance of, of terrestrial radio has disappeared completely, but it has absolutely given way to other things. Um, you know, if, if you're getting in your car, even, I don't know the split on how many people are reaching for the, you know, AM, FM versus how many people are putting on, you know, a, a podcast or Spotify or, um, uh, you know, Pandora in the U.S. now anyway. So, Consumption has absolutely shifted, um, and particularly now with kind of the collapse of, of ad-supported radio, I'm not sure what that's going to look like uh, when we get on the other side of this whole thing. How about virtual concerts? Are they, they being measured? Um, I don't, uh, and I'm sure somebody does, and that's just because I personally don't get it. 
I, I love music. I listen to music all the time. I can't sit through a virtual concert. And that's just a personal thing. I, and this, I say that really truly hoping that there are millions of other people who will and will pay for that experience. I'm just not one of them. Yeah, it's funny. All the hype, especially like in, in last year around this time, there was so much hype around that. And it's sort of dissipated. I mean, we still hear about virtual concerts that are happening, but I think everybody tried it and went, oh, wait, it's not a good way to make money. Yeah, I don't know. And, and now there are just more and more companies getting on board with the idea of providing solutions for it because there's nothing left if you're just talking about live. But the, I mean, the experience of going to a concert is going to the concert, is being around people, enjoying the live experience. If I just want to listen to music, I'll put the record on. You know, I, I don't know that I get much more out of it, you know, knowing that it's being performed live somewhere else. If it is live, it may not be. <laughs> well, then they need a new name for whatever that is. Yeah, right, right, right. Do you see what you're doing to be changing the way A&R is going to be done in the future? I mean, sooner or later, the live performances are going to be coming back. But do you see that meddling is actually going to be the future? Well, a couple of points. I, I also track live performances as well. So that's all part of it. Um, I think that uh, I, I absolutely expect, you know, some dip in, you know, hours spent on platform post all of this, just because people are going to be able to go outside again. And I'm not going to take that personally, I promise. But it's, it's, it's there to help you. You know, it's just there to keep tabs on everything that's happening, you know, in, in the world uh, and bring it to you very efficiently. And I don't think uh, uh, that as a solution will, will become any less important. So then the information, I'm trying to get my arms around the information yeah. that, that a label would see. It would be the consumption on Spotify, Apple Music. Are they broken out or is it just general streaming? It can be. Uh, it can be as, as granular as you want it to be. I also provide some really high level stuff if you don't want to spend that much time digging in through the platform. But it's supposed to tell you, you know, how is an artist trending across different territories, different platforms, um, you know, how quickly are they moving uh, or even second derivative, you know, how much is that accelerated, that growth accelerator and decelerating, you know, does it fit what you're looking for? Does it fit your, you know, genres or territories or audiences or where are they getting consumed? Where are those ha things happening? So it can be, you know, and any number of those things that you want it to be provides, you know, high level and, and detail. Is this something that's obvious or does it require some black magic on the part of the user? I mean, hopefully it's very user friendly. I do know that I have, you know, a lot of those guys before who were offended at the suggestion are, are now users and are heavy users. And I know them personally, and I know it takes them three or four tries to send an email. So if they can use my platform, then I believe that it's user friendly. Can you give me an example of an artist or artists that were signed as a result of, of your platform? I honestly don't keep track. I don't, I don't ask my clients what they've discovered on the platform. Uh, I don't think that they'd tell me because they would just assume I'm sniffing around for points. But I do know that you know, anything that has been signed in the last few years has at least popped up on the platform somewhere. This is probably good for management as well, just in terms of not only looking at what's i guess looking at the trends and what's hot and and how your artist is doing well across multiple platforms yes i've had recently 
um, just over the course of the pandemic, you know, management companies sign on, also have some agencies signing on. Yeah, they'll use it to track their own artists, find new artists, find collaborations. There's a producer manager will use it to find, you know, artists for his producers to work with, um, lawyers looking for new clients. It's, you know, it's supposed to serve everybody's needs for sure. Yeah, yeah. When you're getting it started, what was the most difficult thing? Uh, not going crazy. Learning how to actually build the thing. Um, I have no computer science background. Uh, I was an art history major, and then I started doing A&R. And uh, I, I mean, I would lose, you know, days of my life to, you know, an errant pound sign in a configuration file somewhere. And it was tough. I mean, it was it was 16 hour days, you know, me and my laptop, my pajamas, you know, for basically all of 2015, just learning how to build it, building it and starting to get it out there and piece it together. So you built it all yourself. Yeah. I mean, I had to, I, I didn't take on any funding for it. I, you know, didn't exactly have a huge savings after uh, a couple of years of you know, working for labels. So, uh, didn't have the choice. Yeah. What was the most fun? <laughs> Starting to see that it worked. I mean, and I mean that in terms of people actually signing on and, and becoming customers and it actually paying off. Um, but also just seeing things that I liked, you know, coming up through the platform, knowing that it wasn't, just going to flag um, kind of the, you know, at the time, the SoundCloud rapper now, like the TikTok, you know, pop stuff, uh, that it actually works for all kinds. And that, you know, the kind of, for myself, the, the more indie alternative stuff that I care about actually, you know, pops up and it can be useful for, for all kinds. Is there music that, for instance, isn't quite obvious that all of a sudden it is looking at, at meddling? Absolutely. There are all kinds of other things looking at, you know, uh, um, how long has an artist been kind of bubbling under the surface rather than right on top, adjusting for the size of a market, look at, you know, how big is this artist in their tiny little world over there? Um, I think that's also uh, an interesting indicator. You can look at uh, what you know, what users are, are searching for, which is a huge indicator of purchase intent. It's looking at no matter, you know, where they ran into this artist or song, if people are really digging in and looking for it somewhere, I think that's really meaningful. Um, I first saw what BTS in like 2016, people were looking for it. And I sent it around to people and they, no one listened. It's just like, we didn't understand what this was. This, I, I thought it was an, an accident. I kept looking into it. It's like, I don't understand this but it's there. The activity that you're seeing, was it because of their fan club more than anything? Um, for BTS at the time? Yeah. I still don't know why. Because there, there's so much that goes on with them that you can't look at it as, well, this is an indicator because it's only applicable to them because of their fan club. Yeah, I don't think that, uh, and this is where my opinion probably differs from from others, but I, I don't think that data analytics are, are very good at for this case, being prescriptive and telling you what you should go do with this information, or even being diagnostic and telling you why something happened. You know, a platform that I built is really supposed to tell you, here's what's happening right now. And here's what, based on the information we have, we think is going to happen in the future. You know, these are, are the artists and trends that we're seeing growth on, that we're seeing uh, are, are likely to continue in this way or happen in some other way or likely to, you know, have a huge pop next week but it's not gonna tell you why 
And I think that still requires, uh, you know, a really talented A&R department to dig into and decide, you know, is that something I have a vision for? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the terms of, of you know, BTS, I, it would be, like you were saying, very silly to try and pattern match and just look at what happened with them and try and do that again. Yeah, that's a one-off, I think. Yeah. You're tight with labels and especially label A&R and also with music consumption. I mean, you know that intimately. So where do you see music going? Do you see like there's a big change happening or not? Are we just evolving? I can give you an answer for where I see music going. And I can give you an answer for where I hope it goes. And I'm not sure that those are the same thing, no matter how much I want them to be. Um, but I, I want to see us spend more time on, on artist development, uh, on actually kind of flipping it around uh, and instead of, you know, chasing the trends, deciding what the trends are going to be and bringing that to market. I think that, um, you know, as we rely on, on data, we'll, we often quickly jump to the wrong conclusions. Uh, you know, if, if somebody's numbers are higher, somebody's numbers are low, it could mean a lot of different things. Numbers lie all the time. They're not going to tell you why that's the case. They're not going to tell you if it's on its way up, it's on its way down because of something. And I think that we end up kind of quickly drawing the wrong conclusions. You know, I think that there were three different sea shanty singers signed last month. Uh, and I'm not saying that, you know, the A&R stand don't, don't have a vision for those artists. I just don't know that I would. And I don't know that we drew the right conclusions from that information that was presented. Um, you know, you have to decide if, if it's an artist or if it's a, a meme of some sort. And if you do have something that you believe in as an artist to actually figure out how to get it out there. I don't think we have great methods of doing that right now. There used to be, like you were talking about, tried and true methods of, you know, certain stations would play certain songs and you could kind of get it out there and, and test the waters and then put them on tour. And you, you had a template for these things. And now we don't really have a template for that. And we need to have one. You know, in, in terms of artist development, of course, when I grew up in the business, that was the name of the game where you took an artist and you took an artist three, four, five records deep because you believed in the artist. And, but this was before we had corporate labels. For the most part, if there was something corporate, the labels just still had the entrepreneurs that were running it, and it was different. They signed what they liked. Yeah, and I think you still see that, that happening. Um, I think that it still needs a lot more support and a lot more understanding of, of how to develop those artists now. Um, and I unfortunately don't have a good, a good answer for it, but I think that I am a rabid music fan and I find it increasingly difficult not to discover music, but discover artists. And that's a huge problem Yeah, because most people are not going to put in the effort that I do mm. as, as a music fan, forgetting about, you know, A&R. Interesting. Okay, Travis, last question. What's the best piece of business advice that maybe somebody imparted to you or maybe you learned along the way? Oh, man. Um, I, well, I'll tell you the thing that, that I battled with for a long time was devaluing myself or, or the company. And at some point, you know, somebody said to me that the, the price for something is whatever number you can say with a straight face. It's 
really whatever you say it is. If, if I know that the value I'm providing is X, I need to not, you know, constantly devalue that. You can find out more about Travis and meddling at meddling.co. That's meddling, M-E-D-D-L-I-N-G dot C-O. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.